handling their quarantine, alright? And what a better use of quarantine than to reconsider your entire worldview. Um, and so that's exactly what we're going to do today. This is a special live stream episode that was done on YouTube a few weeks ago. And uh, I'll explain the setup a little bit more in the live stream itself. But basically, it's a discussion between theologian and apologist Randall Rouser with the counter-apologist, who is a skeptic atheist blogger. And uh, they've interacted before on Twitter, and they're kind of a part of that Twitter scene. And I was able to get them together to kind of continue a discussion they had already started on Twitter. But like I said, I'll, I'll introduce it a little bit more during the live stream itself. So this is the audio rip of that stream. I think it was a great discussion. I got good feedback from both of them as well afterwards. I think they felt like there was some progress made. I even got to go one-on-one -on -one with the counter-apologist at the end of it, which is pretty fun for about 20 minutes or so. I also wrote a blog about my thoughts on the discussion because I think some elements went better than others. I was sort of stepping back and mostly just moderating, so I didn't have as much control over it. And so if it were me the whole time with a counter-apologist or me deciding the topic more explicitly, I probably would have done it a little bit differently um, to try to avoid some of the pitfalls that I think did happen. And so check out that blog post. Um, I think that gives a lot more context about how I, with my epistemology and the things my listeners know, how I approach things, um, how I would have approached this debate a little bit more. So it's a post just called Thoughts on the Randall Rouser Counter-Apologist Debate. And um, since I know uh, not everyone is going to actually click that link, which I will post in the show notes for this, um, but briefly, I felt like there's kind of two things that happen often in this sort of debate and that sometimes did happen in this debate. One is what I call a lack of knowledge bracketing. I think two things get smushed together, which is what is, well, first of all, is it, can it be a live option that God raised Jesus from the dead as an explanation for the resurrection? That is one very valid and important topic to debate. The second um, debate topic should be, if that is a live option, what is the best explanation historically for the evidence we have from 2,000 years ago after Jesus died? Those two things get s smashed together, though, where you flip back and forth between the two when they really need to be separate debates. You, If you're not going to even allow that as a live option— then who cares about the historical evidence? Let's just talk about um, is a miracle even logically possible or whatever. So I think those two things get smashed together. And check out my knowledge bracketing epistemology episode if you want more of a defense of why it's essential that we do not gloop things together like that because it confuses ourselves and everyone else. Um, and the second thing was about miracles in general. The, the pitfall here is something my listeners will have heard from me a lot, is that the theological concerns and philosophy of defining miracles and how is it even logically possible, all of that completely distracts from our surprising things happening out in the world today. And I'm more interested in the data. So I like to do it completely bottom up 
just doing a survey of the data. And I think that's the thing. We actually do have really interesting data that makes it seem like some really crazy stuff is happening. So who cares about causation? Let's forget about causation for a second. And are people who were blind, can they now see um, surprisingly and in great numbers and particularly around a Christian ministry? That's a really interesting question sociologically, even if it's some crazy form of the placebo effect. And so I think this conversation also did suffer a little bit of getting stuck in the weeds about definitions rather than actually talking about data. So anyway, that, that is a brief overview. Check out my blog post if you want a little bit more in depth of that, a little bit more of a defense on that. But overall, I enjoyed this conversation. Thanks again to Randall and John, the counter-apologist, for joining me on the podcast. Uh, I hope to host more things like this. I actually have another one in mind soon that I hope can make uh, I can make happen. Um, and uh, thanks for listening. All right, I think we are live. I'm actually checking. Um, I have my phone set up here. This is my first time. Everybody watching, this is my first time using StreamYard, uh, which, by the way, so far is a very easy way to stream with people. But um, I'm trying to watch. I actually have this pulled up on my phone to see if it pops up. Or if you're in the chat, hey, let us know that it is working. I actually don't see it pop up on my ship here yet. Oh, I think there's about a 10-second delay, though. Give us just a second, guys. We're confirming that this is live and rocking. You need that 10 second delay to edit out all the swearing. It's up. Right, yeah. I can check it's it on up. my computer. Great, awesome. Um, hey, if someone's in the chat and can just let us know the audio is coming through as well, like I said, this is my first time using this platform, but we're gonna go ahead and get started. Uh, I'm Robert L. White. Um, I think there's going to be quite a split here of people who um, listen to my podcast, know who I am, and might not really know who these guys are and then vice versa and have no idea who I am. So I'm going to give just some brief introductions before we kind of get in. Um, so let me start with you guys first. Um, uh, both these guys, counter-apologists, also known as uh, John, uh, sometimes by his close friends like Randall and me. And uh, then we have Randall Rouser here. Um, oh, I see Carlos is listening. Uh, audio is good. That's great. So. Uh, if you, every Twitter, there's a subsection for every topic on Twitter. We all know this on the Twitterverse. And there is a skeptic versus Christian, if you can call it that, sub-Twitter. And um, I would say these two guys are two of the heavy hitters. You see them pop up a lot. Uh, a lot of little exchanges, little debates, uh, lots of retweets. Um, and um, they recently were getting into a discussion on the perennial topic of Jesus's resurrection. And um, that, so that's kind of the genesis of this. But um, just to back up a little bit more, um, why don't we just uh, have you guys briefly introduce who you are? So, uh, John, you want to go first? Sure. Uh, my name's John. I go by the pseudonym counterapologist. I have been, I was uh, born a Catholic. My family converted to evangelical Christianity, um, went to private Christian schools, young earth creationists. College happened, backslid, went back to church, uh, was active in my church for like eight years, de uh, trusty, sound guy, very active. And then I deconverted. I lost my faith. And I tried to make myself go back. And uh, there was a lot of family pressure. My wife at the time um, was still a believer. Uh, luckily, she deconverted. But I threw myself into apologetics found I liked philosophy, apologetics didn't convince me, and I kind of really didn't, I felt a little 
I was just very much thought it, the apologetics was wrong, and I wanted to give a philosophical, um, philosophically thoughtful take on countering apologetics. And so I made this channel, this YouTube channel and blog that I once a year practically make a video for. <laughs> How long has uh, that been going on? I think I posted my first thing like uh, January 2013. I deconverted my first when I first started deconverting was about 2010. So it was a long road. And uh, Randall, what about you? I'm a professor in Canada uh, where I've been teaching at the same school, Taylor Seminary, for 18 years. I've written nine books, co-authored three more in areas including apologetics, theology, epistemology. Uh, I teach on apologetics, among other things. In fact, I have an apologetics class tonight after we finish <laughs> recording this. Are you going to talk about this discussion during it? No. <laughs> uh, not, not just because it's not, I mean, I might mention it, but uh, it's not in the, like we're tonight, we're talking about post-modernity, so it doesn't quite fit, mm. uh, but I may refer to it later on for sure in the semester as well. And so, yeah, I should, I've, I've been blogging as well for 10, 11 years, I guess I started in 2009, so 11 years and, and have a YouTube channel, I used to have a podcast, so that's where I'm at. And I believe you recently came out with a book, um, uh, Conversations with My Inner Atheists. Is that correct? Uh, and in fact, uh, my good friend John, counterapologist, was That's one right. of the first people to review it, and he gave it a favorable review. So very delightful. Yes. Thanks for, good for bringing that up. Yeah. I don't agree, but it was very good. It was very well written. You gave a good defense. Well, I mean, of course, there's an atheist voice in there, and I imagine that you agreed with at least a few things she had to say. So. You were tough on yourself. I'll give you that. You gave, you didn't pull any punches. I was very impressed. Thank you. That, that is one thing I like um, about these two guys. Um, obviously, when you're in a, a, an environment where people are debating fundamentally different ideas, there is a lot of caustic remarks and, um, you know, uh, uh, bad exchanges, but um, I think both these guys really do try to give thoughtful, um, sympathetic um, takes on things. Um, and just to give an example, particularly with you, Randall, um, I for for years the violence in the Old Testament was you know just this huge problem to me. But I always one of my kind of epistemological principles um, was to be as honest about the individual data as possible to not let an overarching worldview squash individual data. Um, so maybe the overarching worldview is still correct and you just don't know that link yet, but not to one of the most terrifying things as a doubting Christian is to see a Christian say kind of blindly that like this passage in the Old Testament doesn't even look bad. That um, it's, you know, why is this a problem? And um, so that's one thing I appreciate about you, Randall, is uh, you, I think you take the problems seriously. And uh, John, I think you would probably agree with that. Just, I mean, just from like a book like um, uh, Conversations with Minor Atheists. I mean, that's sort of the point of it um, from my understanding. I did, I bought the book. I haven't read it yet. I did buy the book. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. And, yeah. So I actually, there was somebody on Twitter, not to get on a tangent, but somebody, I mean, this came up in the last week or two. And, and I pointed out uh, that when people were justifying the eradication of the Canaanites in the manner that would 
qualify by legal definition today as genocide. And the justification is, well, they were offering some of their children in sacrifice. I pointed out that Clay Jones, a well-known Christian apologist, talked, uh, defended that and then talked about the wickedness of American society today and saying, look at all the evils we do. And sort of uh, taking the view that in principle, it would be possible, morally justified, to eradicate the American population for similar reasons because of the evil of the American population. And so I pointed out the moral incongruity with this. And somebody actually, actually more than one person, bit the bullet and said, because of things like abortion, we would be morally justified in eradicating the entire American population, which is just, I mean, in one sense, I appreciate your willingness to follow your position through to its logical right. conclusion, but man, that's something. Hey, that's what Pat Robertson said 9-11 was for, so hey-ho. There's and also the fun of- uh, Sorry, go ahead, John. The command of genocide, including killing babies with a broadsword because they sacrificed babies to a god, so you're justified in killing their babies. That's A plus logic. Yeah. So I'm sure we could do um, you know, a full hour on that topic. Uh, and, and just to add a small nuanced point to that, I think it's still even better to be someone who thinks that their final logical step is, you know, I I don't see why we shouldn't you know, do the same thing to America, even though that seems crazy. It's still better to at least say it seems crazy. What scares me the most are the people that say, what's crazy about that? Um, so anyway, not to get off on a tangent, but it's like, it's it's calling things as you see it. Um, I, I appreciate that. And um, I'm not as familiar with your work, John. I've seen you, you know, on Twitter uh, for at least a year or two, but I did um, listen to your whole hour uh, talk on the resurrection and I've skimmed through the blog post and I plan to do my own kind of um, response to that at some point, especially the miracles as people who listen to my stuff know that I like to specialize in miracles. Uh, but no, I appreciated it. I can tell it was a thoughtful take. You're trying to get beyond some of the the back and forth that, that you see a lot out there. So I definitely recommend that that it's in the, uh, the um, description of this video is Randall's book is the blog post for uh, that John wrote, um, and uh, you can also go to the Twitter thread that sort of uh, generated this uh, discussion. And um, briefly for myself, because I realize a lot of people don't know who the heck this guy is, um, I am Robert White. I'm a software engineer in Brooklyn, where John is from, uh, I've I recently learned. Um, and I grew up a, a Christian. Um, I'm from Georgia, actually. And um, very sincere believer, but always uh, philosophical, engineering minded. And so plagued with doubts slowly, but more and more seriously until near the end of college. And then um, I just started studying a lot. And there definitely was a point where it felt like the next atheist book I read uh, would be the last book I read as a Christian uh, is the way I say it. But um, I ended up feeling like there was um, reason to believe and that's kind of how i ended up here now uh, but um if you go go to my site check out my stuff i like to focus a lot on, on epistemology um, because i feel like that is one way to get beyond the simple back and forth forth you hear um sometimes in these uh debates um but anyway so so part of it started with this blog post that john wrote and then some twitter back and forth um related to ideas in the blog post and also just generally speaking about Jesus's resurrection. And um, I'll, I'll let you guys, basically the, the format of this talk is going to be, I'm basically going to let these two guys just hash it out um, informally. This is not a prepared thing. Um, this came about within a week 
um, plans for this talk. So um, yeah, they're just going to hash it out. And personally, at least my goal would be to towards the end of an hour to kind of see if we can figure out where the genuine disagreements are and if we can just sort of make some progress. Um, so I'm going to mostly stay out of it and let them uh, take it away. Um, the, the one thing I, I will say is looking at your blog post, John, it seemed like, I don't want, I want to see if you would agree with this. It seemed like almost the first half is kind of a, a, a defense, um, or, or a discussion of miracles and then, um, and weakening that sort of case or, or showing that you can't use, um, in your view, a miracle to justify an individual religion. And then you move on to sort of weakening the Christian case for the resurrection. And then, then you, you finally move to um, giving sort of like what could be a somewhat plausible alternative natural explanation. Um, so like I said, if people want to go read, um, check that out. Uh, but I'm going to let you guys talk about um, whatever you want to do. I think, John, were you going to um, start uh, briefly? Sure. I'll, I'll try and be just hit the high points of, of the video uh, basically what my argument is against the resurrection. My goal is to is to attack the argument for the resurrection as it is used in a cumulative case apologetic. So the idea is you present um, arguments for the existence of a monotheistic God to get a skeptic or an atheist over to monotheism with one punch, and then you hit the argument for the resolution, and then bam, Christianity to the face, right? So... That is that seems to be the very common approach in Protestant apologetics, at least. Uh, so I'm attacking it from its use in that context. And I have basically three points, two really philosophical points. The first philosophical point is that um, I argue very strongly for uh, methodological naturalism. Basically, the idea that when you're doing history and evaluating historical claims, much like in science, um, we will, while doing that uh, practice of history, we will disregard supernatural explanations. And basically, I give an argument for this based on our contemporary experience of what miracles are like um, and i try very hard not to beg the question against theists um i don't know if i want to go into that specific argument later i don't want to talk over randall um but the second main point is is i i try to defend methodological naturalism and if you do that you're not going to believe the resurrection on the basis of the five pieces of testimony we have in the bible um and then let's say a theist either defeats my argument or just disregards it and thinks that I'm just straight wrong for some reason. The next point was, once you allow testimony in the far past or even recent past to establish a miracle has occurred, the wide variety of miracle claims that are equally or better well attested than the resurrection uh, undermines this unstated premise in the resurrection argument. And that is that um, a miracle is evidence for the philosophical and or theological teachings of the miracle worker. You don't typically hear the resurrection argument presented and then at the close, the apologist would say something like, even though Jesus rose from the dead, that's not a reason to be a Christian and it doesn't prove he's God, right? So you won't hear that sort of thing. It's kind of like an unstated premise. And so 
the miracles of Satya Sai Baba. There's a variety of mystics, Joseph Smith. Um, we have a lot of testimonial evidence for these miracles. And we can find a plethora, I mean, throughout history, for especially Asian history. Um, and once you've kind of allowed that in, I don't think there's a principled way to allow Christian miracle claims and not permit the other ones. And so even if you were a mere theist recently convinced by apologetic arguments, you are not going to be able to bridge from that to Christianity. I think I've talked enough, so I can let Randall out. Where where do you want to start? I'm gonna let me out. Let <laughs> me out go. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's start with methodological naturalism. So you said that um, we we can't have supernatural explanations. So uh, what is naturalism uh, such that this type of explanation is permissible, but another type is not permissible? So what is the type of explanation that is permissible, and what specifically is the type that is impermissible? Okay, so we can go with, say, a Draper, a Draperian-style difference. So we would say naturalism is the idea that the physical is the base ontological uh, foundation of reality, whereas supernaturalism is that the mental is the base foundation of reality. I think that's how he hashes the difference out. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and then we would say that the on supernaturalism, we would say that the supernatural has the ability to affect the physical in ways that would deviate from our regular experience of the physical world. Okay, I find that problematic. So if you say supernaturalism is the idea that the mental can affect the physical, um, well, I've enough background in philosophy of mind to say, in my view, that my mental intention to raise this cup to make an illustration just raised the cup. Um, and I, like if, and, and if you're gonna say, well, in order to do history and methodological naturalism, you have to be committed to physicalism of the mind and thus to believe that a mental intention, such as the mental intention to raise the cup is either a physical thing or is supervenient on a physical thing, but is itself causally a feat and thus does not cause anything to happen, such as the actual raising of the cup, then I think that that's just an extraordinarily implausible position. So what you'd be saying, in essence, is to do history on this account, you can't actually appeal to the intentions of individuals as explanations for historical events. You'd have to say, no, it, it's epiphenomenal. Intentions, mental intentions, which are non-physical things, are not part of the causal story of historical events. So. I would say that would beg the question almost against physicalism to say that a physicalist could say that um, mental intentions just boil down to physical states of the brain, right? So I don't want to go down a rabbit hole of how we're going to define the supernatural. As you're aware, there's a quite a variety of ways. So if we want to go down and say, I mean, there are a variety of ways to state this. So we could just say that a we would exclude God acting in the world as an explanation, as methodological naturalism. Well, that's that doesn't really work as a definition, right? Because what I'm asking for is a definition of naturalism and supernaturalism. 
So one that would certainly could include God, but presumably includes other things other than God. Uh, it looks like if you if you define methodological naturalism as simply the view that God's not allowed in explanations, then that looks very ad hoc as a definition. So what I'd expect is that you could provide um, an account, like a general principled account as to a type of explanation that is excluded, which includes God. Now you gave one, um, but I offered an objection to it, right? I said, well, if we took the, the view that you seem to take from Paul Draper, then you would ex exclude mental intention from historical explanation, which I think is just an, ex it's an implausible view to say the least. So well, I would agree, but I don't think that you could, that you have to, dis like if you were a physicalist, then mental intentions boil down to physical states of the mind, right? So that would be included in doing history. That would be a consistent way a physicalist uh, could say, hey, I'm countering human intentions, embodied minds, uh, in what in explaining an action in history. Yeah, you could you could be a physicalist and be a historian and believe that at some level mental events ultimately are identical with physical events or that they are epiphenomenal on physical events. So in other words, they are, do not causally do anything, but are just created as byproducts of physical events. You could take that view. My only point is that I don't think anybody would say that taking that view is somehow necessary to doing history. It's just incidental to what the historian actually does. Okay. So we could try to come up with a more accepted definition of methodological naturalism. I mean, there's, as you're, I'm sure you're aware, there's quite a debate on exactly how to define naturalism and supernaturalism. And that is itself a uh, rabbit hole, rabbit trail, as uh, one of your book titles would say, that we could go down. Um, so we could just say supernatural entities. The, we would exclude the, the actions of supernatural disembodied minds uh, from acting on the physical world. You want to go that? I mean, we well, could. there's a lot of ways we could do this, right? And I, I don't know if I want to necessarily get bogged down in what is a, a I mean, I admit it is, a, it is a very big debate and it is important, but I don't think my arguments hinge on that. Okay, so that, and, and I know like, so we were of course talking before we started recording about how people can sometimes get kind of frustrated with endless terminological definition. The issue is, however, that if you're going to say a particular kind of explanation is excluded by methodology, then we really do need a clear definition as to what that kind of explanation is, which is methodologically excluded from consideration. So you now you, you gave a different definition, and this definition, it, it allows for mental explanation, non-physical explanation in historical events, but it excludes non of mental or ment it excludes mental explanation which is disembodied so you can have embodied mental explanation but you can't have disembodied mental explanation so was that would that be i think that's a fair way to go i mean just to keep just to keep going i think that would be fine i mean we could go quite a long way on trying to define this i don't necessarily even know if there's a regularly agreed upon definition of natural versus supernatural yeah well, and, and and to my mind, I'm okay with that because I don't buy into methodological naturalism, so I don't need to provide a good definition of it. Uh, I think it's the person who wants to advocate for the position who is committed to articulating it and then defending it. Now, I'll say this, that if you do take the second view, according to which 
you can have embodied mental explanations, but not non-embodied mental explanations in historical explanation. Then you could have, on that view, an account of divine action in history, just so long as God is understood in some sense to be a an embodied being. And there are, in fact, models of God, we call them panentheistic models, according to which the, body, the, the world is, in some sense, God's body. It is the physical body through which God immediately acts. So by that definition, you could, have, you could allow for God as a mental explanation of historical events, just as you allow for my mind acting on my body in the world as an explanation of historical events. I do believe that you, you sure, let's go there. I think that's going to have a lot of problem with traditional Christian metaphysics and Christian explanations and doctrine of creation ex nihilo and all of these other things that are typically held by a very large portion of Christians. Well, there, there are views, there are models of panentheism that are defended by Christians. Certainly process Christians defend them. Uh, many feminist theologians defend them. Um, people like Philip Clayton, for example, has a very sophisticated panentheistic model of divine action. For me, my only point here is that the definition you gave of the second definition you gave of methodological naturalism allows for, for God to be an explanation. So we're back to the point that we could look at the historical data for the resurrection and consider God at least in terms of being a panentheistically embodied being acting in history and bringing about that event. So, okay. If you just, want to go just there. to add, um, this, this relates a little bit to um, some of the things I was saying earlier in that, uh, well, first of all, you know, about sometimes getting tied up in definitions and stuff. M my goal is to, to ultimately make sure the data is talked about and not, um, squashed by worldview. Um, and what I mean by that is, uh, and one way I use to get past this, and we don't need to go here just yet to like the historical evidences, but, but is to say, if you didn't know any better, did the evidence fit well for Jesus to be raised? Let's say, or if you didn't know any better, would you say aliens visited here? And you have to qualify that some, but my point is to say, first, what is the clear view of the data? And then you can say, okay, Yes, that's what it seems like, but um, I can't ultimately use that as an explanation because um, I don't believe miracles are even you know, possible or could ever be proven or something like that. The reason why I think that distinction is important is because we all have a clear view of the world in that way, because we're, we're calling shots as we see them about how the data actually is. And John, maybe you don't think it's the case that if we didn't know any better, Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe you think that the evidence just even in spite of that is still really bad, but I just, um, I don't want one thing to, to squash the other. So, I mean, sure. I, obviously ultimately in this talk, you know, I, I want to hear some about the, the evidences, but you know, I'll let you guys continue where, where you want to. So where I go with that is the fact that somebody tells me that this person rose from the dead is immediately going to be discarded just on the sheer fact that based on my contemporary experience, people don't rise from the dead. Even if a God exists, God doesn't just raise people from the dead. There are not really any instances in which I have observed this in any kind of way, especially after a certain period of time. We're not talking, we're talking resurrection, not res resuscitation, right? So that doesn't really happen. And then other claims about God's 
action in the world um, really don't hold up very well to scrutiny. Um, and I think we have good evidence against believing that God has acted in the world, regardless of whether you're a theist or an atheist, especially based on the way miracle claims are talked about by believers. Well, do you think if resurrection were a more mundane explanatory option, do you think the first century data we have fits it really well? Or do you think even if it's a mundane explanation, uh, you think other explanations are better? I mean, if it was mundane, yeah, my, the central part of my objection is how it. I have no modern referent for God's action in the world to be able to say that Jesus rose from the dead, right? So one of the things I talk about at length in the, the article, video, whatever, is what it would take to falsify, say, methodological naturalism, or what it would look like to make me be a Christian based on the evidence we have, right? And so one of the things was, I, I broke miracles into four types. There's the, the kind that you are unverifiable. They have natural explanations, right? But they, in a religious context, especially with background knowledge and beliefs, would plausibly be believed as a miracle, rationally believed as a miracle by a believer. Randall, your work here was influential on me. And then I have the physically impossible miracles, the kinds of things that just don't happen. They can't, as far as we know, in terms of the physical world, without a God acting, they cannot happen, right? The people don't rise from the dead. Um, you can't get more energy out of an explosion than you put in, right? Then it's available for potential, all sorts of laws of physics style stuff. Um, and so we, the unverifiable kind, we have lots of claims for in, from a variety of religions and they're unverifiable by nature. They might've been verifiable for a short period of time, but quickly lapse, right? And then there's the kind of miracle that would be verifiable of which we have none. Right. And so the example I give is that I would ex I would get rid of this methodological principle um, if we had, say, Catholic priests and only Catholic priests at every mass can take a glass of water or a clear glass, pour water in it, say a prayer and it turns into wine. One of Jesus's miracles. And they can do this every Sunday, every service that it they do. If you're huh? It does happen. That's the doctrine of transubstantiation right there. Did they turn water into wine? Yeah. No, not water. They, sorry, they turn wine into blood. Except they don't believe that it physically turns into blood, Randall. No, they, they do. I would, that would be falsified then. Because no, we, no we, I'm, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but it is actually true that what Catholics believe is that the substance does actually change into the body and blood of Christ, but the accidents that which is empirically available to us does not change. So okay, they, sure. they, they actually quite, they literally do believe that, you know, they believe that it does become the body and blood of Christ. Right. Except Our that we can't, we can't tell if we test for blood, we won't find blood. We'll find wine. But the accidents haven't changed my friend. Okay. Well, that's a very different metaphysic and it's, it's, it's on the level of Carl Sagan's dragon in my garage. Right. Well, so it's, it's, I'm talking about a verifiable water turns into wine. Yeah, and he, yeah key part, right? We can test this. We can test the water. We can test the robes of the priest. We can observe them. We can say the same words and a non-Christian can't do it. A non-Catholic priest can't do it. And we can even verify the wine afterwards and say, hey, it's the same kind of Merlot. Every time the 
the Lord has a good vintage, right? And we would have an instance of a verifiable miracle. There are other ways we can do verifiable miracles, but this seems to be a, a pretty nice one. It's also one of Jesus' supposed miracles, right? And yeah. if I had background knowledge that Christians and only Christians can do a miracle, right? that would give me the contemporary experience to look at Christian historical miracle claims and go, that's plausible, right? That's what I would need. And if that happened, if tomorrow it starts, I convert. I have to change a drastic amount of my view of what the good is, my views on skeptical theism, problem of evil, a wide variety of things, right? Your, your objection here really begs the question, though, because your objection to miracles is that they're essentially they're miracles. In other words, a miracle by definition, however we're going to define it, and we certainly could get into the con conversation about defining what a miracle is, but a miracle by definition is an extraordinary event. To complain that they're not a common mundane event is not a proper objection to miracles. I mean, and for example, you'd, if a person says, nothing could convince me that mammals can lay eggs. Uh, and then someone comes back from Australia and says, you know, I encountered this thing called a platypus. No, no, mammals can't lay eggs, right? I mean, you want to say that a priori, but then you're going to have to be open to disconfirming evidence in principle. And if you want to say miracles, they're, 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 they're so, by definition, so rare that I'm never going to believe the evidence is sufficient for one, that's just dogmatism. What you have to do is set the dogmatism be, be, uh, behind you and just take the evidence and look for all the possible explanations. Begin with natural explanations. I have no objection to that. You only move to- You can't even define it. What? No, you I- can't I, def I got it. We went I over- a natural explanation. It's an explanation pertaining to nature. So, um, but what I'm not committed to right. is methodological naturalism, which excludes a particular class. That's what I'm not defending, right? But I can say you begin with explanations that pertain to nature and the processes of nature. And it's only when you've exhausted those that you would look for some other alternative. I'm gonna, well, all right, we can avo I'm gonna, I'll avoid the, the, the definitional, I think, issue that exists there. Um, so to say that a miracle has to be an extraordinarily rare event, I don't think so. During Jesus's life and especially his ministry, they were not rare. All right. Even the apostles after his death, even after his death, there are claims about the apostles working miracles. Right. So this was not something that was withheld at that time. It wasn't withheld in uh, the ancient time or ancient uh, Israelite times. Right. Elijah calls down fire for, uh, to prove to prove to um, the people there that Yahweh was the true God and ba Baal was a false God. Right. That was part of the prayer. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, miracles are clustered. They come in clusters. And there are four main clusters within the Bible. You first of all have the miracle clusters around the Exodus and the ensuing years within the desert. And then you have clusters around Elijah and Elisha. And then you have clusters around Jesus and you have clusters of miracles around the establishment of the church uh, and in Acts. And so the and the theological analysis of that would be that God provides new signs of action when he's doing something new in the world. But by definition, those are extraordinary. You know, the, the fact that you get to this new moment of something happening and then you have this cluster of miracles that are pertaining to God's action in history doesn't make miracles mundane. They're still extraordinary events. I, I don't necessarily see 
a priest being able to do it and only Catholic priests being able to do it every Sunday or on, on performance of a mass to be mundane. It would be extraordinary every service. It would be the highlight of every service to see God manifest himself in the presence of his, his church inside his temple, right? That would certainly be a extraordinary event, not replicable by any other religion on the planet. And you're telling me that's mundane? I don't, I, I, I disagree. I disagree with the definition of miracle, but I disagree, even if we went with that, that this would be a mundane event. It would just be a sign that God exists, that God wants to act into the world, more importantly, right? And it would be a way for us to differentiate Christian miracle claims in history versus other religions' miracle claims in history. Okay, um, the, the big issue here is the resurrection, right? So, um, and this was one of the things where we went back and forth on Twitter and I was pointing out a fact pattern that I believe is best explained by a, a historical resurrection. And your response was to offer what seemed to me ad hoc, a, a multiplicity of ad hoc and frankly half-baked suggestions. So for example, the idea that there was an empty tomb. Well, you know, I don't know if you said maybe they went to the wrong tomb or they stole the body or something. No, I, I just don't believe the empty. I believe the empty tomb was a fabrication, but okay. Okay, well, well, let's talk about that. On what basis? Because we have in 1 Corinthians 15, which is a creedal form that goes back into the mid-30s. And when Jews talk about Egero, that Jesus rose from the dead, what that means for them is that his body came back to life. And if his body came back to life by implication and entailment, then the body would no longer be in the tomb. So the creed itself entails, implies that there was an empty tomb. I, so the word is buried or translates to buried. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't say tomb, right? And I do understand that Jews believe in the preservation of the bones and everything along those lines, but Jews that were crucified Typically, almost typically at that time, were left to rot, or after a certain point, were put in a mass grave. Now, you could say the Gospels have a narrative of Joseph of Arimathea, and in the video slash post, I talk about reasons why we could think that Joseph of Arimathea was a, an invention that grew over time. Well, we're not talking about Joseph of Arimathea or the Gospels. We're talking about First Corinthians sure. sure. and a creed that goes into the 30s. Sure, sure. And and the, the word there that I reference is egero, is to come back to life, to raise, to rise up. And then throughout that entire chapter, 1 Corinthians, after Paul has quoted that, he then explains Anastasius or resurrection. And for us, as for Jesus, it is about our bodies as well, coming back to life, that which was mortal taking on immortality. So that's the whole context in which the creed is confessed. And the entailment, the implication of that is that the tomb was empty because the body came back to life. But there's no tomb in the creed, Randall. He was buried. There's, you, you could, I could agree. The creed says he came back to life. He had a body. Sure. But there's no tomb. There's, he could have died and was buried. And then he wherever, wherever you want to say he was buried, he came back to life. And that would mean that the place where he was buried no longer had a body. Right. But if it was a mass grave or if his body was major no, decomposed and eaten. Then, from silence. There's no evidence anywhere that Jesus was buried in a mass grave. 
okay? It was a very common event of how things were happening, and the explanation in the Gospels about how he got off the cross early before his body was eaten shows a lot of signs of legendary development. It was written decades later. Right now we're talking about 1 Corinthians 15. I, I agree, but if you're talking about he died and was buried, what happened when they normally buried people on a cross? They went into a mass grave. The fact that something normally happens doesn't entail that it happened in this case. So that's also silence unless you want to go into the Gospels. Yeah, so what you're doing is you're arguing from silence. What so the creed says, what, no, what the creed says is that Jesus was buried and then he rose again. And then he was seen. Let, let yeah. me ask this, Randall. Um, the the creed. Do you think that it is neutral towards either a tomb or a mass grave? That it's agnostic towards those two options, and you get a tomb from other places. Um, there, there's so so many people were thrown into mass graves. There's there's zero zero evidence that Jesus was thrown into a mass grave. I mean, the person who's argued that Jesus was thrown into a mass grave was John Dominic Crossan. And his only argument for that is people were usually thrown into mass graves. When and I'm pretty sure J.D. Crossan also said that he he thinks Paul might have acknowledged an empty tomb. Um, I heard him say in mm -hmm. his dialogue with yeah. N.T. Wright, and, which and was interesting so, too. So anyway, um, and in terms of the Gospels, we also have to keep in mind that there's core confession within the gospels that is it's based upon earlier uh, oral traditions so you have the m tradition in matthew the l tradition in luke you have the q tradition and then you have the markan tradition and those are all independent witnesses to various aspects of the death and uh, appearance again of jesus after death in the resurrection and those are already circulating within the church and then would have been gathered and formed later on into the gospels themselves and so those are putting us into the early decades after the events as well. So, so that is when the oral tradition is forming and it is forming around Jesus having been placed within a tomb. And there actually is good reason to believe, by the way, that Joseph of Arimathea was a historical person. It's very implausible to claim that, the, that these traditions, and he's witnessed in two independent traditions from the mid first century, that they would invent a person that you could easily falsify to show that there was no such person on the Council of the Sanhedrin at the time. So it's highly implausible to think that the early Christians would have invented Joseph of Arimathea. I don't, given the time that it would have happened, however many years after that it was, when it was finally written down, that it was, then it was added to the story and we have reasons to believe, good reasons, we know stories, false supernatural claims were added to the gospel accounts. We know this. So when it was finally written, Mark is the earliest, I think it's dated roughly in the 50s at the low end, right? So that's 20 years after the fact, in written in Greece or in Greek at least, that they're going to be able to say 20 years ago, this guy didn't exist. If he's on a council, he's probably older. If he dies, it's just as easily... Yes, he was. No, he wasn't as the resurrection itself. I don't really see how that's falsifiable. Also, the Gospels include literal falsifiable additions to the Gospel of Mark, the earliest one, right? Where it talks about um, how do we prove this? Exactly this. Um, Christians can drink poison and survive. They can handle snakes. They can heal the sick, right? You know, we, we don't need this argument. We can have bleach in a the long ending of Mark from, from chapter 16, verse 9 and following is, is just irrelevant to the discussion. Um, 
But I mean, I'm surprised that you're dating Mark into the 50s. That's that's a highly unusual position. You I thought I thought it was. I could be wrong. I'm I'm doing this from memory. To around 70. 70. Yeah. yeah. Okay, my mistake. I'm I mean, I'm okay with that because I think <laughs> one of the reasons that Mark is commonly dated late to 70 is because Jesus seems to predict the destruction of the temple uh, in in Mark 13, and so it's commonly surmised that that would have then come in after the destruction of the temple, but. But there are reasons that you could argue for Mark coming in the 50s. And to have a gospel being written based upon pre-existent oral traditions, right? To have it being written 20 years after the events or 25 years after the events, already on oral traditions that were circulating prior to that time, that is extraordinary in the standards of ancient history. But let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, so uh, we've talked about the empty tomb and, and, and our disagreements on that. The next thing is, is to talk about how did uh, Peter come to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And then we could, it's an independent question as well to ask, how did enemies uh, like Paul come to believe? But to talk about people like Peter, uh, we have a truly extraordinary thing here because uh, on either side of Jesus, we have a century each way where there were multiple messianic claimants, people who rose up and they claimed that they were going to overthrow the Romans and that they were the Messiah. And each one of them gathered a following. And then each one of them was eventually destroyed by the Romans. And in each case, immediately everybody scatters and they said, okay, that wasn't the Messiah. In this case, however, there's overwhelming evidence that this person was crucified. They were, um, and then we have all the descriptions of them, of course, being dis dissolute, uh, experiencing all the trauma of the loss of their leader but something happens. They become convinced that he rose again. So where does that belief come from? Certainly. So I would, uh, one of the things I can talk about is uh, the Millerites, right? So back in the 1840s, uh, there was this guy, William Miller, he predicted Jesus was going to return on March of 1844, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't happen, right? And his followers are mocked. Uh, they're going through all this disillusionment. A lot of them sold all their possessions. And then finally, this one guy, um, uh, Hiram Edison, interpreted the prophecy to be in a way that happens in his uh, in heaven instead. So Jesus did the thing that we thought was going to be coming back, and he says, "Oh, it happened in heaven." Can't falsify that. And the Seventh Day Adventist denomination was born out of that belief to reconcile the failure of the material failure of a, what people believe to be a specific prophecy by appealing to something outside and unfalsifiable like happening in heaven. And so to say, hey, Jesus died and he rose again and then ascended into heaven. Remember, the, the, the hypothesis isn't he rose from the dead and he's walking around and I go talk to him. It's he rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven a little time later, right? So that he looks from the a dead, lot he like was clean. he was dead physically by people. Uh, there so, are claims that he was. I'm, I'm, what I'm less right. interested in is the Millerites. What I'm more interested in is what you actually believe happened to Peter. What I think happened to Peter, there's a couple of ex possible explanations. He could have been somebody that they were turning, the, the messianic movement was turning to as a leader, and he wanted to kind of, they were, they were looking to him to try and lead them, and he either had 
uh, nefarious motives possibly, and he came up with this theology, or he has a, some kind of a dream, and he believes that he sees Jesus's body with uh, the wounds and everything in it, and he talks about how he's in heaven now, he's atoned for our sins. He comes up with this new theology, and the movement starts growing like any other religion. Let's pause there. I mean, because certainly, see, see, this is one of this. Remember, I said half baked. So, one of the issues I have is that when people kind of throw out, well, could have been this, could have been this, and what we need to do is camp out and say, okay, let's explore this idea. Let's see if this idea works. So, the first idea is a conspiracy idea. So, Peter, you said he had nefarious motives. Now, say say more about that and the evidence for that and the motivation behind it. Well, Why? the evidence is that I don't believe that uh, I don't believe that a God acted and raised Jesus from the dead. So, how do I explain the story and the people coming up from the belief? I'm okay, saying, let me. Yeah, I, I want to pause there because that relates sure. to what I was saying earlier. Uh, this is helpful because. Um, and, and I think I wasn't totally clear like when I used the phrase, like if I didn't know any better, like I definitely don't want to imply I want to uh, encourage a sort of a naive belief. What I'm trying to get at is, for instance, John, do you think the evidence is good for Jesus's resurrection, but you don't believe God uh, that miracles happen and God doesn't exist? Therefore, you take another option. Or do you think the evidence for Jesus's resurrection is bad anyway? So that's why. Like right here, you're jumping straight to the yeah. philosophical idea of, well, we don't have God, though. So I'm fine getting to that ultimately, but I first want to hear, um, okay, yeah, this idea, and, and Bart Ehrman sometimes says this, like this is a crappy naturalistic explanation, but it's still better than a supernatural yeah. one. Is so that what you're doing? Get back on that, and then, John, you could respond. So Please go ahead. It seemed to me that this, this was a key moment where you said, because I'm an atheist, I've got to find a natural explanation. And so even if there's no evidence for Peter having a conspiracy, no motivation psychologically for it, it's still better than considering a miracle. So yes. Yeah, I would say that. Yes. And I think the evidence is particularly poor, specifically because I could do I could find you two stories from Sathya Sai Baba raising people and people saw the dead person. A doctor confirmed the guy's dead puts some cotton in his nose and his ears, puts a sheet over his head, and then comes back a couple hours later and the guy's up and said, Sathya raised me, and Sathya says he raised the guy, right? Is that good evidence that Sathya Sai Baba raised the guy from the dead? If, all right, example. There are six Texas pastors at a mega church, and they go for a hike in the woods, and they have, like good Texans, concealed carry weapons. And then they say they hear the voice of a demon and all of a sudden, the holster opens up and the gun comes out and the demon says, your ministry is too effective. And the gun fires and kills the head pastor right in the back of the head. And they call the cops. The cops come, arrest them all. That's their defense in court. Do you want the jury to buy that explanation or do you want them to be put in jail? Right. I'd honestly rather talk about Peter, <laughs> which is actually what we were talking about. I find that. We can tell endless stories about other things that I really don't think are relevant. What I think is relevant is your claim that Peter was motivated by a conspiracy. Here's an obvious problem with that, is that Peter was martyred. There's very good evidence that Peter was martyred for his faith in Rome, that he died for his faith, that he never recanted it, that he believed it. I agree. So again, I don't think that that is a very plausible explanation at all. I don't think that there's any independent evidence for it. It's ad hoc. There's no psychological motive for him to develop a conspiracy. Uh, so, and I mean, there, there's, if he had developed it for some inexplicable reason, 
there's no evidence that people would have followed him and believed him. They would say, look, here's Jesus. He's dead. He's in the tomb. What are you talking about? That if he doesn't happen. do it till a little bit of time after the body's been eaten and decomposed. Also, the idea that he couldn't have come up with it as a nefarious means because he was murdered for it. We both agree Joseph Smith was a huckster, but there are people who confess to his miracles, including hostile witnesses, and he was murdered for his beliefs and did not recant to the end. Right. He was violently persecuted. The Mormon church violently persecuted across the United States. And we've, we've got excellent evidence as to show that Joseph Smith was a huckster. I mentioned to you on Twitter, Fawn Brody's biography that provides evidence for Joseph Smith was a fantastical uh, person who was seeking treasures in upstate New York, that he plagiarized portions of the Old Testament, the King James Bible, when he was writing his own Book of Mormon and so on, that he wanted to have followers. We can totally discredit Joseph Smith based upon the historical record. What we don't have for Peter is anything like that. I have a question for Randall right here, because um, the comparison to Joseph Smith came up a decent amount in the Twitter thread. And I, I even chimed in and said, you know, I think that's an interesting thing to explore. Um, because Christians will often say that um, you won't find people willing to die for something they know is a lie. They'll die for a belief, but they won't necessarily. It's, it's not easy to find someone dying for something that they know was a lie. They they are usually true believers. So Randall, is Joseph Smith an example of someone dying for something they know is a lie, or is that not a good comparison to the disciples? He Well, Joseph Smith was lynched, for one thing. So uh, it wasn't like he was willingly walking to a cross and had an opportunity to recant. Right? He was lynched while he was in prison. Uh, but is it possible over time that a person can convince themselves that they are this great prophet? Yeah, you can do that over time. My question is, where's the evidence? And, and then they're not. They're, they're, the that's 30. different. Peter. Yeah. They're they're not dying. If if Joseph Smith, that's different then, because if Joseph Smith convinces himself, he's not dying for something he knows is a lie. He's dying for something he believes. And so we're back to what we all agree, which is people will die for beliefs all the time. So to me, that's an important distinction. If Joseph Smith if the best way to look at Joseph Smith is that he convinced himself, then um, that's different than Peter um, being a charlatan and knowing, I guess you would have to say, are you saying Peter also convinced himself that it so was all real and he was- You could go either way, right? You could take the same thing if you want to say that he was convinced. I would say that yes, Joseph Smith was lynched, but he was put into that prison for some time ago. He was persecuted by the governor of Illinois repeatedly. And if he had recanted, I believe, and then the, the Mormon faith kind of crumbles at that point, then the, the persecution of the crowd that was just angered at the fact that all these Mormons were in town and setting up their own their own town in Illinois would not necessarily have lynched him. That could very well have saved him. So I could go with, I don't know. I don't know whether Joseph Smith convinced himself. I don't know whether Peter convinced himself. I'm saying it could have been nefarious and then he believed it. He could have just had a dream and naturally believed it, right? All it needs is some a couple of days for the body to decompose on the cross and get eaten by carrion animals, right? And then, and or be put in a mass grave. And then it's up, then it's, up, then you're up for grabs, right? And so so you're, that, you're saying you find it plausible that the, the, the second a body's decomposed for, for a few days, you can plausibly begin to convince everybody that the person was supernaturally raised. No, I said, and eaten by carrion and everything else, yeah, right? And you can convince people that, oh, they've actually been raised. Sure, if the body's been thrown into a mass grave or something like that, or is unrecognizable, right? All you need is a small period of time. It's not that long, right? 
and then it becomes past the point of being verifiable that this is the body of Christ. Absolutely. So, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. And like, so for example, so Peter, let, let's talk about your second option. So your second option, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about Paul, but your second option was maybe he had a dream. Um, what was that one again? And sure, then he, he, became dream, he has some kind of a dream or he has a vision. He cooks up this theology. There's a variety of ways he can come to the belief that this is how I'm squaring the failure of my movement that I was so integrally involved in. I mean, he was the one Jesus loved. He was very, very tightly. That was John. That was John. That was John? Or Peter was the rock. Peter was the rock. Right. So he was so, still very prominent in the Jesus movement at the time. So, yeah, but so I'm, I'm wondering, like, what is, again, so what we have here, the evidence we have is that every time a, a messianic leader is crucified, he's shown to be a false teacher. In Deuteronomy 21, it says, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And what Jews understood from that is that when you die by Roman crucifixion, you have God's curse on you. You are a false prophet. So Peter would have had every motivation at that point to believe they were misled. I don't Jesus think... was a false prophet. And now you're proposing somehow he has a dream, uh, which convinces him that, in fact, Jesus was a prophet and rose from the dead. Yeah. So I don't think that they're necessarily going to be as tied to that specific verse in Deuteronomy when he's as emotionally invested in this thing. He's invest, He's put three years of his life in at a minimum, right, into this ministry, being one of the leaders under Jesus in this ministry. They, they, they were very, you know, they have this very tight movement. They have a lot of people following them, I believe, is the general consensus that there was a sizable group. That's one of the reasons Jesus was crucified, was that he was inciting a, a lot of people to rise up. Um, and he's distraught by this and he believed in it. And then it takes to convince him. It takes one or two leaders and then they have this idea, they go with it. And then some segment of the movement grows with them. Okay. And Paul, what's your view of Paul? My view of Paul is that Paul has, Paul's persecuting people. He's violently murdering them. Right. And on the road to Damascus, he has some kind of a, episode. It could be a medical thing, a seizure, stroke, something, loses his eyesight, sees a flash of light, and then he opens his eyes. He can't see, right? There are medical conditions that can cause this. He's traumatized by brutally murdering people who won't recant because they strongly believe this thing, right? That has an effect on you. Even soldiers will be affected by killing in a just war, right? And then he snaps and he thinks this is a sign from God and he becomes a Christian. So again, here the problem is there's zero evidence for that. Uh, when Paul talks about his own conversion in Galatians 1, he says, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, beyond my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Uh, he says something similar in Philippians 3. There's there's zero evidence there that he was experiencing any sort of guilt, psychological guilt, that somehow he was doing something wrong. On the contrary, he uses this Jewish term of having zeal for God, uh, the same that we find in the Old Testament, for example, with the zeal of Phineas, where he undertakes to kill two people who are having intercourse with one another because he believes that this is God's will for him to do this. And that was Paul's mindset. It was God's will that he destroy these false teachers that were proclaiming falsely about the Messiah. There's zero evidence that he had the psychological um, 
you know, conflicted mindset that you're imposing upon him, uh, let alone that he somehow then had a, some sort of mental episode. So he's writing, he's writing the Galatians account well after he's converted. He's also, you could be zealous and still have trauma from what you're doing, right? A, a soldier who has PTSD is still effective in the field, right, for a good period of time, and they might go through their entire tour, but still be affected by the trauma of what they've done, even if they still believe in the mission, right? And so he has some kind of a medical episode. He takes it as a sign from God. The trauma's there, and then he converts. He, he, he you know, there, there is something to be seeing that recant, and I'll stop, and he's throwing stones at somebody's head, violently murdering them, right? That can have an effect, even if you think they're wrong, and then you have some sign from God, because you have some kind of a seizure or stroke, and there it is. So again, I mean, in Philippians 3, uh, he says uh, that he was a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for rightness based on the law, faultless. He There's zero evidence, but this is another example. You have Galatians, you have Philippians, where he explicitly says he was zealous for God, he did not have the kind of psychological conflict that you are projecting back on him. So again, when it comes to Peter, when it comes to uh, Paul, when it comes to the fact that they're talking about a resurrection of a body in the mid-30s, you keep giving these sort of half-baked explanations for each one of them. Now, I, I get that you're in principle opposed to supernatural explanations, but I, I mean, I, I think that's why we have the standoff that we do is because in principle, you said, as an atheist, you're not going to consider uh, the possibility that God has acted in history. But I think the danger with that is that you're closing yourself off to historical evidence that you could otherwise consider. So the, the all right. So the first thing is that yes, he could still be going and thinking that he's doing the right thing, even if he sees like it's still somewhat traumatizing to murder someone, especially in a gruesome way like they were, right? And still continue. He was. I fully think. He was going to Damascus to persecute the Christians in Damascus. He has some kind of a major medical event that he interprets as a sign from God that he's done the wrong thing, and that's what turns him. That's what I'm saying is turning him off. I think he actually believed this was a sign from God and he needed to convert, right? The Christians took him in, right? So he gets taken in by the Christians. They help him. That could have been part of it. Regardless, I think that's the explanation I go with. And you say I'm, I'm cutting myself off from historical explanations. I've given good reasons why I would cut myself off. And I've given the criteria that God could take trivially to give me the reasons that would literally make me convert. And I believe would make probably millions or billions of people also convert to Christianity. And I think... This kind of brings up the, the problem of divine hiddenness, and I think the answers that are given from divine hiddenness um, will work against the argument for the resurrection. I said there's a little irony there, uh, because, to my mind, because you're saying uh, I'm in principle not going to consider that possible evidence because God hasn't been clearer in other cases. Well, the irony is maybe he has provided evidence here that does show his action, and so Ironically, by appealing to divine hiddenness, you're actually closing yourself off, possibly, from evidence that you could otherwise consider. So I don't think so, because, like I said, I've referenced a variety of other 
contradictory religions that make similar miracle claims that are just as well attested. As not just as well attested. I mean, I, I, they're not just as well attested. I, uh, the Millerite is is simply a false analogy. For example, I, 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 I about the Millerite wasn't a miracle. Uh, fair enough. And then and then, so Joseph Smith also I argued against that. Now, uh, in t again we're we're back to the well. What about this? Well, what about this? But the what aboutism should we shouldn't allow that to distract us from what we're talking about here was how best do you explain on historical grounds what happened? So and, I, I do want to hear uh, briefly at some point uh, your thought on the 500 piece. I'm not sure you talked about that anywhere, the appearance of the 500, John, um, as well. I think that was just, it was just added as a part of the tradition. I think it was was just false. I don't, I think it just so Paul was just lying. No, that, or that it was part, it could have been part of what was passed on and that the story that Peter told um, when it grew, and then James might have converted for similar or other reasons, right? And then the story as it grew among the wider Christian community, especially as they got further away from those two and things were allowed to develop, right? Theology develops on all sorts of religions that we would both agree are false, right? It grows from that, and then that's the creed that Paul becomes familiar with, or the claims that Paul becomes familiar with. So that that's what I, that's what I would say there. And I say that when you talk about these things are, are not related, no, I believe they actually absolutely are. We both agree that Joseph Smith was a huckster. Wouldn't be the first time God used a fallen or flawed person um, who did far worse things than being a huckster. And we have hostile witnesses attesting to the miracles of Joseph Smith, to the fact that they said the miracles, the people who witnessed it who were Mormons thought it was obviously a, a miracle of Joseph Smith. And there were people who were Protestant ministers who thought it was a nefarious demon. There was an ex-Mormon, someone who, who left the Mormon faith, who believed that his miracle was a miracle, but it was from a demon, right? So the, those are the two that I cite, right? And again, Sathya Sai Baba, it's, there's a whole website that it's hard to find things in English specifically because it's mostly in, uh, from India, but you can find quite a lot of claims of what he's done. So when you tell me God's provided this evidence, God's provided evidence for all sorts of religion that's on the same level. Well, and, and you actually have to keep an open mind and consider it all on its own grounds. Uh, I haven't looked at Satya Sai Baba, but I mean, I don't have any objection in principle to God, not to, to, to the idea that God can't do miracle claims or do miracles in other historical social contexts, have to consider the evidence for it. What I wouldn't do is close myself off to the evidence a priori. So, I mean, um, I kind of need to wrap this up from my end, but so maybe if I can just sure. kind of give a, my closing statement and then you can have your closing statement and and then Robert, Sounds you can kind of tie it up. So, uh, <laughs> sure. okay, so, so from my perspective, it was in, interesting. I do think that we made some progress here. Uh, I don't think that John provided a workable definition of methodological naturalism, but I also think that, uh, Really what became clearer as we went along is that he's simply opposed to the idea of attributing historical explanations to God. So in that sense, rather than talk about methodological naturalism, maybe methodological anti-theism might be in, in some respects a better uh, explanation of his position. And I think that um, the danger here again, and I'll just conclude with this, is that um, if we take that view and we say in principle, I'm not going to consider the historical evidence for the resurrection that it could possibly be the best explanation of the evidence that we have available to us. Then I think that that is just an a priori dogmatism 
that is potentially closing you off from what is good historical evidence. At the very least, I think that we can have good historical grounds to believe that the best account by way of explanatory scope and explanatory power of the creed of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5, uh, and the belief in the resurrection of Jesus, the belief that he was seen by Peter and certainly as well by uh, James, his brother, and by Paul, and that these became converts of him, that it transformed their idea of what the Messiah was, that it led to them adopting this heretofore unknown idea of a resurrection in the middle of history, that all of these extraordinary events and implications, the best explanation for them is that God, in fact, did raise Jesus from the dead. Thanks, Randall. Uh, John, uh, okay. closing so, thought. Yeah, so I think there are, uh, the, the first thing to say is that this is not a a priori principle that I'm holding. I'm holding it on the basis of the fact that uh, all the miracle claims that we have uh, for improbable types versus physically impossible types are unverifiable. In order to not beg the question, we can't really say whether they are or not. It's based on background knowledge, what you think. But when it comes to verifiable miracles of which you had in the past, and I don't see why people in biblical times should be epistemically privileged versus people now, especially if a God is all loving and loves everyone equally, then we should have physically verifiable miracles. And if I had physically verifiable miracles, specifically in the Christian context, then I would believe these claims, I would take them more seriously. I could make up a nice story about Superman saving a plane, and you could argue about, well, what about the black box? If I have a black box that survived, but then got destroyed in a fight with Lex Luthor afterwards, how do you explain the back box that said Superman saved the plane, right? We discount these things because we discount these kinds of events happening when we get them in the basis of testimony. And I think when you say, well, I, the point is, is that say, if you discard methodological as a naturalism, then you have all these other miracle claims that exist for a variety of contradictory religions. And if you say, I'm open to those miracle claims, God acting in that way, then you open up the other problem that I alluded to, which is miracle claims are no longer evidence for the theological truth of the miracle worker, right? That is what the resurrection is supposed to prove that Jesus was the son of God, that God validates his message, right? And so when you say, well, God could have done things through Satya Sai Baba, well, then God did the Jesus thing in that way. But Sai Baba's and the, the Hindu-based uh, teachings he had were the actual true religion. And the way to salvation and reincarnation and being one with the Baba uh, is to, to follow his teachings, right? that that's the problem when you get rid of methodological naturalism and so that's why i discount all these kinds of miracle claims right and i think if you don't discount the miracle claims then you're stuck in a very relativistic and unprincipled way to say my miracle claims are the ones that reveal theological truth and the other ones either didn't happen or are just in support of it in an unclear way Thanks, John. Um, Randall, John, thanks for coming on. Um, John, I'm going to just offer this to you. Do you feel like hanging out for 10, 15 more minutes? Because um, I, I could chat for a second if you, you feel like it. Randall, I know you got to go. I'm, All right. I'm good. Okay, great. All right, Randall, thanks so much for coming on. Everyone, check out Randall's stuff. Uh, he puts out a lot of great content, has blog, books. Uh, give it, uh, Check it out. All right, By see the you, Randall. Folks, he's a wonderful person. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciated the conversation. Have a great night. Thank you, Randall. You too. 
Yeah. So, um, so obviously we just ran into a time constraint and we, yeah. I mean, this is one of those discussions where you end up talking, like there was at least three huge topics we're discussing here, which is, um, miracles, the historical data of the resurrection and divine hiddenness right there. And we touched on others too, but all three of those are massive topics. Mm -hmm. And, uh, unfortunately, um, I think one of the casualties when this happens is you end up talking about Joseph of Arimathea for what, like a minute and 30 seconds. And, and so you, you on some of the specifics, um, it's hard to, to come to any sort of conclusion, you know, you just kind of like bat it around and then you move on bat it around. Right. So, um, I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed that talk, but, um, I think it did, uh, suffer from, um, sometimes if you break out these talks to make them more specific, you make more, you, you gain more ground on that one thing yes. rather than going on to the whole thing. Um, so one thing I want to just put to you to wrap up some of what I was saying about the resurrection is, and this is autobiographical and I just want your take on it is like, so I, I started out as a young earth creationist, pretty wooden view of inerrancy Me too. and <laughs> joined the club. Yeah. So, and I, I literally grew up watching Ken Ham videos and watching create and, and writing creationist uh, papers for school. So anyway, yep. that started sliding and I would debate atheists on message boards when I, sorry, evolutionists uh, on ah. message boards when I was in like middle school and I kept losing those fights and I didn't know why. Um, and so that kept sliding and I thought it was going to slide all the way because it felt like I was constantly trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Um, however, for me, when I got to a few different things, but particularly the evidence for the resurrection, I understood where the skeptics were coming from. But to me, the situation flipped. It felt like the from uh, as far as explaining historical data, the skeptics were trying to put a square peg in a round hole and it naturally fit with Christianity, but I'm not discounting the idea of that if you think miracles are impossible or impossible to verify, that that shouldn't overrule in the end. But like, do you do you think I'm irrational for, for looking at the historical data and saying, wow, that's actually a natural fit with the data we have, if it happened, and then you can decide what you think about divine hiddenness and God and miracles. Um, so, I certainly wouldn't say you're irrational. I think the irrational is theism or atheism rational is a dumb debate. Obviously, both are rational because any. I think the most defensible definition of rational is that it's logically consistent. Even young Earth creationists are rational, right? You could, you know, yeah, sure. It's very sure. hard to find rational. Like just like we went down yeah. the a little rabbit hole of natural, supernatural, etc., and right. methodological naturalism. Um, it's very contested what the definitions will be, right? And that's where I think a lot of the debate will end up going because it's more metaphysical. And so the reason I specifically find the resurrection to be particularly weak is it's very more specific. It's less philosophical. You're looking at, at best, five sources. And I, you can argue that down to probably less because of the problems with the Gospels. But Let's just say at best, you got Paul and 1 Corinthians and the four Gospels talking about the resurrection. Okay, I'll find you five guys that'll attest to the miracles of a variety of religions. And you tell the story well enough, and you have a good enough editor, right? And the Bible was collected after the fact and put together. Certain books were excluded. Other books were kept, right? 
There was a right. variety of texts that were eventually right. collated into the Bible. So there was an editing process, right? And you say, these are the facts that we're going to present. Okay, I don't, I can get five guys to attest to whatever other miracle you want. And then it's always yeah. going to yeah. be the best fit, right? And so that's why I say you have this dichotomy. If you're going to, I exclude them all. But see, I, I would disagree that it's always going to be the best fit. For instance, like if you go to Mormonism, I think a majority of the people who originally signed an affidavit that they saw the golden tablets, a majority ended up leaving the church entirely. Sure. I'm so, not even talking about the golden tablets though. I'm, but I'm, no, I'm just saying, I'm saying, I don't think, um, I, I think it could have been the case that, um, that Jesus rose from the dead would not be a natural fit, that it would be pretty clear. It could have been the case of the historical data we have that um, there are, you know, it actually is a, a fit to to posit that somebody had a seizure and that started the whole chain. And, and let me just add on to that. I just watched um, a Gary Habermas video. I'm sure you're quite familiar with, and he brought up that um, in the last 25 years, from his count, only 25% of skeptical scholars have even put forth a natural account of the history of the of the resurrection data and you could argue that's because there's not a single and this is what i think randall was pr pressing on there's not a single um theory that d they all fit awkwardly naturalistic explanations there's not a single naturalistic explanation of the resurrection that just naturally fits it's all a bit awkward and they've been bombarded and so scholars don't even try that anymore they just um go to the philosophical and say um well we know miracles don't happen so so the way I look at it is any story along these lines, right? Ultimately, you're like, that part was just made up after the fact, right? I don't think that's a data point. And that's one of the problems I have with the minimal facts approach is that people don't agree that they're all facts, right? And I, there's other problems. We, that's a rabbit trail. I mean, but, you are talking about like 90 to 95% of scholars with, with the minimal facts. Well, I wouldn't say scholars so much as I would say the apologists who present a minimal facts argument. The minimal facts is not, I think, a, from a, my understanding. Uh, and I, I mean, I've studied this a decent amount that the minimal facts, the Gary Habermas minimal facts are only facts that 90 to 95% of all scholars like SBL society of biblical literature, uh, which Daniel B. Wallace says the majority are not even Christian, uh, except so, um, now, you know, we're talking about something 2000 years ago, but still, I think that's, significant. and I, th I think that's a big, part of the problem in that you get a lot christian miracle claims get a lot of credence for the fact that they happened a very very long time ago and a lot of data gets lost to history we don't really have yeah. any contemporary accounts of paul peter james right there's no they could have been hucksters like smith but there was two thousand years ago when there were little piddly people with a cult nobody wrote about them there weren't even historians right so they came up with something and they ran with it and the stories evolved and then, of course, the story, as the story evolves, the story gets notionally better, except in the case of Mark at the end, the late edition, the thing that we know is a late addition to Mark, where it's a demonstrably false supernatural claim is added to the text. And I, that's why I think Randall and other uh, apologists now like to focus on Paul and 1 Corinthians, because there's right. so many reasons to doubt the gospel accounts that they don't even want to go there. And I think ultimately it becomes, you can be like, well, how do you fit the data to the story? And the story was made up. There's all sorts of things that people just came up with for their religion, right? I think the yeah. Sai Baba stories are made up. Something maybe happened, but 
I mean, I think it got embellished. I think the guy heard them say it and ran with it and kind of played it off, right? But like, I don't think he's he was God and Hinduism is true. But there's a ton of stories, right? And that's sure. just a very recent modern claim that is well attested, and that's one of the nice parts of it being relatively close, right? Now, there's questions about Sathya Sabhava's character and accusations that his followers deny and others say were true, etc., right? But just by like. I got five pieces of testimony, five pieces of testimony for a supernatural event for a major thing happening like a murder isn't going to hold up in court. Why am I going to base my life on that? Sure. So obviously we can't have an entire second debate sure. after this. Sorry, uh, I sorry, appreciate sorry. this. No, 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 no. I'm just, um, I'm cutting myself short really. Um, that, um, I, I guess simply I, I would say, and I guess, partly what I'm trying to leave the viewers with is that um, I don't, I don't think that the data can just be explained away of like, um, well, people are just making this up because then why, like one question would be like, why are so many critical scholars trying to use like a hallucination hypothesis? So it seems like th that so many think that um, they were sincere because of the historical data. And so then they end up with a hallucination hypothesis, which might fit. But for me digging into it, it just felt like these very, awkward fits and even like William Lane Craig, he debated Gert Ludemann. And I, I remember at one point he, um, he kind of got Gert Ludemann. He, he was really, uh, you know, targeting it, targeting in on some parts of Gert's um, case that didn't make a lot of sense. And Gert just finally said, but God doesn't exist. You know, that miracles don't happen. We can't, for him, the problem of evil was a big part of it. So to me, that's sure. still significant. If, if like the data we have, um, it, it fits awkwardly to say they made it all up. It fits awkwardly to say it was a hallucination. It fits awkwardly. Uh, and maybe you think it doesn't fit awkwardly, but when I studied it, it really did feel like it fit awkwardly. And once again, I don't think the skeptic is being irrational for choosing the awkward explanation because maybe they have better reasons in, a, in another place. But for, for me, that was an eyebrow raising at the very least. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't know if you have any thought uh, I mean, that. I think uh, I remember the Ludemann debate. I think that's where I first heard the idea of Arimathea as a as an addition, right? Uh, that's one of uh, his theories, anyway. Um, I think the 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 made it up port, like I think all of these miracle claims. That's the problem. There's too many others. You don't just have silence and yours. You have noise, and that's worse than just kind of silence of miracle claims. And so. Once you open the door and you say, I'm admitting a miracle explanation here, but not elsewhere, now you got a problem. Right? Yes, and that, that is an important and, debate, but I don't want to take that away from, um, from hey, it's an awkward explanation to say it was a hallucination. I think for instance, if I give you this, if we look up a bunch, of, we could pick a bunch of specific miracles, because there's a ton yeah. of Sathya Sai Baba. And if I, I could find a couple of them where the account is just this account and you go, well, how do you explain this? Otherwise, how do you fit the data? It's just, it seems silly to me because once you just tell a good story, well, how do I fit the data to that? It's a story it's made up. Right. Or I mean, it was a hallucination and it grew over time. Right. Yeah. But or, it would become very curious if the more you looked into Sai Baba, um, it almost seems like these things are happening and you have a real hard time explaining um, are these people, okay, these people seem to be sincere. Like maybe you're, you're an investigative reporter and you're like, these people seem sincere. And then 
um, you know, you get to this place where maybe you still say, I'm going to just hold this out to the side and say, um, I don't know what's happening. I don't believe it, but I don't have a perfect uh, naturalistic explanation. And, and maybe that's fine, but that's a different situation than you look into Benny Hinn or someone like that. And you're like, okay, I know what's going on here. <laughs> like well, yeah, the data they, itself explains it away. Well, yeah, you could rather than your all sorts of stuff with, with yeah. the, the, the faith healers and, and hucksters. But um, I, I guess my point is it's different for the data to falsify it than it is to uh, more philosophical concerns to, to falsify it. I think I think once you go into the they all happened, all these miracle claims could have been acts of God. You've opened a door that's going to okay. close you off so from getting to Christianity. This is that's, let, that's the yes. problem. Okay, so this is um, and I, I don't know how much time you have. I won't keep you much longer, but uh, <laughs> I love it. The kids are in bed. The kids you know, are in bed. My wife up. gave me the all clear. <laughs> I love it. I'm, I'm sitting here. All right, I'm so, not a bourbon um, though. So oh man, <laughs> can't help you there. Um, so. Miracles has become a little bit of a specialization for me, as I was telling you before. And um, maybe we can have a separate miracles chat later where we properly get into it. But um, first of all, what I like to do is start, do a bottom up approach. Uh, start with the data and try to figure out what's actually happening out there. If Sai Baba is healing people, if the data makes it seem like Sai Baba is healing people, if we have x-rays of before and after and hundreds of them from various sources, wow, that's pretty awesome. Um, now I might, I'm not saying we should immediately believe Sai Baba has supernatural power, but we know something more about the world at that point, that there are x-rays that seem to confirm this guy. Uh, and Hey, maybe it's this crazy form of the placebo effect that we should go investigate. So that's why I try to make it bottom up is because I want to actually talk about the data versus, um, getting into definitions of miracles. Um, and I mean, just to give a quick you know, overview. Uh, well, I guess one of my complaints is in my experience with miracles, the number and the quality of Christian miracles is at least 20 X any other religion or non-Christian or sorry, non-religious, if not like a hundred X. And what I mean by that is like, I, I mean, I've tried to look for non-Christian miracles and Sai Baba has come up. Uh, but it, just to, I mean, Craig Keener's book, Miracles, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but like hundreds of millions of people. <laughs> okay. And, and so does a, a Christian philosopher who's very active on Twitter, uh, Stephen J. Graham, had okay. a scathing uh, review of Keener's okay. book. I was like, this is so much of this is just garbage. Maybe there's like two or three that are interesting out of his, what, they make a big number, two, three hundred, whatever. Claim, so, okay, right? well, first of all, his main goal is to do a survey of what people claim. So just, I mean, and that's surprising, like from survey data, hundreds of million people claim to be an eyewitness to a miraculous healing today. Like that's something he he was able to get from survey data. I, that's just like, wow, okay, maybe it's all dumb stuff and not true. But um, for me, like, okay, just with Christian miracles, I have seen x-rays before and after of like a bone being healed um, with prayer. I've seen case studies with medical documentation for MS, for, and Dr. Kanthi Gunther Brown did a prospective study showing a 10x improvement with hearing and visual after prayer. Um, and so may maybe that isn't good enough, but I tend to want to challenge skeptics like where I have never seen anything close to that from the, from non, from Sai Baba, from anywhere else, x-rays and um, even medical studies. So a part of that's going to be 
uh, selection effect in terms of the access of like these sorts of things. And then the people who are going to medically document it is in the West in English sources that are predominantly Christian, whereas these sorts of things happen all the time in in uh, Islamic countries, Hindu countries, those sorts of Buddhist Buddhist places, right? There's all sorts of cool things that Buddhist monks can do that theoretically you can't explain. I think a lot of the things that you say could happen are cases where we have naturalistic, basically happening without prayer anyway. Right. So there's natural cases, theoretically natural cases with no religious context of it happening. As far as I'm aware, I was reading a, a thread by somebody on Twitter about how the these studies about the efficacy of prayer don't ever hold up. They typically typically they find it's like a placebo effect. And the apologist response is that you can't do a double blind study of prayers effects because God doesn't want to be hit found in the data or something along those lines. Right. God's not a, a mecha mechanistic force. Um, I mean, yeah, I think that that is hard because you are um, you're dealing if if God is real and doing miracles, he is an agent who, for whatever reason, chooses sometimes to heal, sometimes not. And that opens up questions about the problem of evil and everything. But that's in divine hiddenness. Once again, another big right. topic. But you're, you're right. Like those studies, there have been some studies that are like kind of gold standard studies that have shown improvement from prayer, um, which I can. um Dr. Brown, I, I have those references. I'll, I'll add them to my my blog for that. Uh, I'm not saying I'm not trying to make too big a deal with that. I think miracles are more like historical case studies. And once again, let's say you you say that okay, these things are going on in the Muslim world, the the Indian uh, Hindu world, uh, but we don't have the data. But I mean, I want to see the data because, like, let's say they do have X-rays of bones regularly being healed and people being blind and then seeing again, then then that's really interesting because we have um, something is going on here. Like, why is this happening to Christians and Hindus? Uh, I don't know what that means for Christianity, but it's pretty interesting. So I, but to me, I just have had a real hard time finding those non-Christian miracles. Uh, and I, I want to do more research. Like I, I want to look into Sai Baba. So my, my granted, it wasn't an extensive study, but my look into that was that there was nothing empirical or definitive in terms of proving any kinds of efficacy of prayer nothing could be replicated and when when and then there were times when they tried to replicate it it could not be replicated and i think the main problem is is like all right you're gonna go with this ah oh, we have lots of claims of christians praying and healing people but you can't give me the freaking wine thing you can't just give me the clearest most demonstrable form of god saying i am here and this is my chosen people in religion right you're gonna you get like it's so debatable right so i mean that yeah. that is a good very good question but to me that is arguing about divine hiddenness like why why did he do the lesser miracle but not the bigger miracle um so that that's why yeah i i mean I, I think that's a worthwhile debate but that's why when i'm talking miracles i tend to like to to try to make it focus on whatever data is out there and figure out what's going on in the world. And then you have this very important question of like, okay, maybe this stuff is going on in the world, but why doesn't God do the wine thing? Why doesn't he appear to me? You Especially know? when you say things like, um, you say things like broken bones and x-rays, right? X percentages of diagnoses are going to be in error, right? There's a certain amount of error rate. And you have- Yeah, this would have to be rise right. above- And then you have a particular, you have a particular yeah. very religious segment of society, 
people break bones every church if they're in a church there's going to be a prayer circle in two hours in social media age right yes. and then every what x percent of the error misdiagnosis of looking at the wrong x-ray has a very high correlation of oh they prayed and look it's healed right you know it, ha it, it has to go above what i call the the background noise you said the noise from my look at the data and like i said this is you know would get onto a whole nother debate and stuff sure. but my look at the data i think what i've seen on the christian side goes well beyond the white noise of weird stuff and coincidences and stuff like that um and if people are interested my my last post on my blog was when i was on the doubts aloud podcast and we just discussed miracles with i discussed miracles with two ex-christians and i think we had a really interesting talk and we talked about dr brown's study uh she's a teacher at a secular university her book was published by Harvard University Press called Testing Prayer. It's really interesting. It's a history of prayer studies. It's a history of uh, science and religious people. Here's an interesting point, and uh, I don't know if um, you're aware of this, John. Uh, you might know just from your own studies, but like the sides have sometimes flipped about who wanted to bar miracle studies from science. So sometimes it was the religious people didn't want it to be studied. Uh, because they thought that was like testing God. And then sometimes it was uh, secular people not wanting it to be studied. But anyway, it's a fascinating history of all that stuff. And she did her own studies um, where she measured hearing and vision after prayer um, and found a statistically significant result. It was published in Southern Medical Journal, uh, which is a secular journal. But um, this is a whole nother can of worms. Um, yeah. And since I just gave that little spiel, I'll let you have a uh, last word if, if you want to say anything to that. Certainly. I mean, I don't know the specifics of that uh, book. I typically know that when these studies are done, there's problems with who's funding it. And the Templeton Foundation is behind a lot of them. And then they obviously have a result that they want. Methodology gets argued over in terms of how the study's done and then whether or not it can be replicated. Right. And so that's where I think a lot of the objections to these sorts of things come from. Um, there's, I have problems with miracle claims that have physical or naturalistic explanations, right? So once sure. you, that's what yeah. I put into the improbable uh, right. miracle claims and like a cancer know, remission, which cancer is remission, happen. bone yeah. healing, that sort of thing, spontaneous, right? Um, versus the physically impossible. And I, I think it's telling that you have all of the improbable types that could have a natural explanation, but nothing on the physical kind, the physically impossible kind, or if you do, that's widespread. And then when it comes to verifiable ones, um, and they had them in the past and they suddenly seem to have stopped, right? It was in biblical times. They were verifiable. That's why I, I tend to right? ignore stuff in the past because I, it runs into too many problems. But even then, even, once it's removed, it, it it needs to be something ongoing, right? There's a variety of ways I have examples in the post, but that's where I think the, the death knell is. The fact that you say there's got to be evidence, but it's always a plausible way out. I, that doesn't that doesn't fly with me. I think that's what that's what discounts it. I think you're just looking at a bunch of noise and trying to find a way to to make it seem significant. Is what I think those studies do. Um, and, and there's I a do lot agree. of studies that don't have. There's a lot of studies that right. found no correlation and no improvement whatsoever. There's been quite a few as far as I'm aware um, that found none. So I'm surprised to hear there's another one, but we could, I could look into that. Um, 
you know, the, I'd be, yeah, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts yeah. on Dr. Candy Guthrie Brown's because I think healing from blindness and deafness is significant enough that it goes beyond cancer remission uh, if they truly were blind and deaf. Um, like, I mean, that is not something that is just uh, random. Like, if it happens and it happens to dozens and even hundreds of people, all in a what I like to say, if it clusters around a Christian context, if it's evenly spread everywhere then, you know, yeah, that's you noise. Yeah. Right, so that's I agree. I we, we really agree on that. It needs to rise above that statistical uh, blips on the radar. And I also agree if it happens in other religions, I'm going to list kind of like what Randall said. Um, I want to know what's happening in the world. Like, Hey, if some spiritual episode is bringing out this mega uh, placebo effect, let's hear about what is going on there. But I don't want to ignore that. If people who were blind can now see after prayer, like if that, if we have good reason to believe that and on a, a numerous level, not just like one person, um, then I, I think we should look into that. Yeah, I, I, I could, I would agree. I look into it from what my look at this showed. It was not particularly significant and it. Most, almost all of them had natural cases where it had just occurred. Right. And I just think for that to be the kind of evidence versus the very definitive kind, like that just seems something I couldn't base my faith on that. Right. Sure. It just wouldn't be the kind of thing that would give me a, a belief in God. I think it just wouldn't, I would need, we, we have very clear ideas and fantasy writing about what the world looks like when gods are real. And that's why I have the the example about the water to wine. We can come up with a million other ones. Um, and it it could be that way. It could have been. The fact that I have this methodological naturalism is not a priori. It's post-priori. God wants it to be ambiguous if God exists. So then the argument for the resurrection, I think, doesn't work. Right? I think that's, that's the conflict that I think exists between hiddenness and the resurrection argument. I'm going to uh, leave it there. Um, Except one thing to note is I, I do agree that um, th the miracles alone probably wouldn't make me like a Christian. I, th I think I think it's multiple things, you know, but um, thanks so much for coming on, John. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, it was time. great to after seeing that little counter apologist logo on Twitter debate Randall's dog i think is his uh, avatar yeah. right now <laughs> it was fun to actually hear you guys in person and uh yeah get to talk to you and interact with you some um you know myself so you too for coming on thank you take care all right uh take care everyone check out uh john stuff counter apologist uh check out that blog post uh let me know your thoughts and uh have a good night all right bye